Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 25th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. United States attorneys for the Central District of California collected over $317 million in criminal, civil, and forfeiture actions in 2018. Last year's collections also included over $235 million worth of assets forfeited for crimes committed both here and abroad. And $21.2 million was secured through civil enforcement matters in which prosecutors recovered federal funds lost primarily through fraud or other misconduct. The office's civil division worked with other U.S. attorneys' offices and colleagues in Washington to collect an additional $162.2 million in civil cases. That includes a $65 million settlement with Prime Healthcare Services and its CEO to resolve allegations of Medicare fraud. Prime Healthcare and its founder and CEO, Dr. Prem Reddy, agreed to pay the $65 million to settle allegations that 14 prime hospitals in California submitted false claims by admitting patients who required only less costly outpatient care and by billing for more expensive patient diagnoses than the patients had. This practice is known as upcoding. Prime Healthcare Services and the not-for-profit Prime Healthcare Foundation constitute one of the largest hospital systems in the nation. It has 45 acute care hospitals in 14 states, and it is headquartered in Ontario, California. Advanced Pain Diagnostics and Solutions Incorporated and its owner, Kayvon Haddadan, MD, have agreed to pay $860,000 to resolve civil allegations that the clinics violated the False Claims Act. They allegedly submitted claims for reimbursement to California's Medi-Cal program for services rendered by a provider who was excluded from participating in the Medi-Cal program. Advanced Pain operated pain management clinics in Sacramento, Roseville, and Rockland. The clinics employed physicians and nurse practitioners who provided medical treatment to patients. The settlement resolves allegations that Advanced Pain billed for services rendered by an excluded nurse practitioner under Hadadan's billing number as if the services had been rendered by him. The allegations resolved by the settlement were first raised in a lawsuit filed against advanced pain under a key tom or whistleblower provision of the False Claims Act by a nurse practitioner who worked at advanced pain. This act allows private citizens with knowledge of fraud to bring civil actions on behalf of the government and to share in any recovery. The whistleblower in this matter will receive about $155,000 of the recovery proceeds. The HHS Office of Inspector General maintains a publicly available database of more than 70,000 individuals and organizations excluded from billing federal health care programs. And our crime report. The medical marijuana industry is at the doorsteps of the workers' compensation community. 
However, according to a report in the Los Angeles Times, political corruption is abundant in an industry that transacts business in green dollar cash. One might wonder if any of that green cash might help push the workers' compensation political doors open to the pot merchants. California is awash in cannabis cash from inside and out of the state, partly because pot remains an illegal drug under federal law. So banks will not accept cash from the businesses. And the state's black market for cannabis was estimated to be worth $3.7 billion last year, which is more than four times the size of the legal market. The state has seen a half-dozen government corruption cases as black market operators try to game the system through bribery and other means. Proposition 64, approved in 2016, allowed the state to license businesses to grow and sell pot, but required the firms to also get approval from the cities and counties, most of which have outlawed pot operations. Proposition 64 also outlawed the transportation of cannabis out of the state, which was an issue in the Siskiyou County indictments against Chi Yang and his sister last year. Yang allegedly approached John Lopi, the sheriff, in his county office of Wairika in the summer of 2017 and initially suggested the one, that $1 million could go to a foundation headed by Sheriff Lopi. Sheriff Lopi notified the FBI. At one of the subsequent meetings, Yang's sister allegedly sought assurances about what their payments would buy, such as protection from being raided. The pair allegedly then paid Sheriff Lopi $10,500, including four $500 cash bonuses, before they were arrested. That case is just one of several that have involved cannabis sellers and growers allegedly bribing or trying to bribe government officials, or public officials acting illegally to get rich from marijuana. Last year, Jermaine Wright, then the mayor pro tem of Adelanto, was charged with agreeing to accept a bribe to fast-track a marijuana business. Wright's trial is scheduled for next August. In May, FBI agents served search warrants at the home of Rich Kerr, who was mayor of Adelanto at the time, as well as at City Hall and a marijuana retailer. Also in May, Humboldt County Building Inspector Patrick McTeague was arrested and charged with accepting $100,000 in bribes from marijuana businesses seeking expedited help on county permits. Last March, a federal jury reached guilty verdicts to bribery and extortion charges against Michael Kimbrew, who was a field representative to then-representative Janice Hahn when he accepted cash from undercover FBI agents while pledging his undying support to protect a marijuana dispensary that the city of Compton was trying to close. This March, developer Dorian Gray was held to answer by a judge in a preliminary hearing on charges of offering bribes to then-Oakland City Council President Larry Reed and Assistant City Administrator Greg Miner. Gray allegedly offered the councilman cash to help obtain a cannabis dispensary permit, 
and Reed reported the offer to authorities. Gray is charged with offering Mr. Minor, who oversees marijuana permitting for Oakland, a free trip to Spain. Not all the recent cases involve elected officials. Los Angeles County Sheriff's Deputy Mark Antrim pleaded guilty a few weeks ago to federal charges stemming from his arrest for robbing a warehouse of a half a ton of marijuana. The former mayor of the city of Cudahy was sentenced to one year in federal prison in 2013 for taking cash bribes in exchange for supporting the opening of a medical marijuana store in that city. The head of the city's code enforcement division and a city councilman were also convicted of taking part in the corruption scheme. Sam Clowder, the former congressional aide and San Bernardino County Democratic Party officials, pleaded guilty in 2017 to charges in Texas of possessing 130 pounds of cannabis that he was transporting back east from California. And in regulatory news, more than 100 insurance fraud bills are pending action in various states. Major state Supreme Court cases also could have a dramatic impact on fighting fraud. Privacy of consumer data and how it affects fraud investigations should be also closely watched this year. The California legislature rushed through AB 375, the nation's most sweeping data privacy law, last June. The law is known as the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, CCPA, and it takes effect on January 1, 2020. The CCPA applies to insurers and all other businesses in the state and has very severe restrictions on the use of private data. It is not clear what impact it might or might not have on an insurer's ability to even report fraud. California legislators rushed the bill through to avoid a ballot initiative proposed by Alster McTaggart. McTaggart agreed to withdraw the initiative if a law was signed by the governor. Now legislators in other states will watch closely for how California's more sweeping law moves forward. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners has now appointed and approved its model data security law. The model was adopted last year by South Carolina, Ohio, and Michigan. Many other states will likely debate adopting versions of the NAIC model this year. And there is still relentless pushback from the applicants and plaintiffs attempting to impose personal bad faith liability. A lower court in Washington state ruled that employees of insurance companies can be sued personally for bad faith. The case of Kedola versus Allstate Insurance arose from a motorcycle collision with a pickup truck in Seattle, resulting in an uninsured motorist claim. The appeals court ruled that the Allstate adjuster can be sued personally, including claims for treble damages and attorney fees. Liability also would extend to outside experts who assist insurers such as IME physicians, third-party investigators, and defense attorneys. The appellate case addressed a split of authority in the state of Washington. Several 
Federal court judges issued rulings from 2005 through 2016 that non-insurer entities were exempt from bad faith claims and Consumer Protection Act claims. The Cadola case has now been appealed to the Washington State Supreme Court, and it will be closely watched. Courts in Montana, Texas, Mississippi, and Kentucky have long recognized claims against adjusters for bad faith and violations of statutes governing claim handling practices. In contrast, numerous other courts, including California, have held that adjusters generally cannot be held liable for bad faith. And many other jurisdictions are undecided. The plaintiff's bar has also sought to apply RICO laws as a penalty in workers' compensation claims in a number of jurisdictions for at least a decade with very poor results. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals just affirmed the dismissal of a California effort in the unpublished case of Black v. Corvell Enterprises Comp Incorporated. The DWC has posted an order adopting regulations to update the evidence-based treatment guidelines of the medical treatment utilization schedule. The updates are effective for medical treatment services rendered after April 18, 2019, and they incorporate the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine's most recent treatment guidelines to the Clinical Topics section of the MTUS. The ACOM guidelines that are incorporated by reference into the MTUS are the ankle and foot disorders, cervical and thoracic spine disorders, elbow disorders, hand, wrist, and forearm disorders, and the workplace mental health, post-traumatic stress disorder, and acute stress disorder guideline. Healthcare providers treating, evaluating, or reviewing physicians in the California workers' comp system may access the ACOM guidelines and the MTUS drug list at no cost by registering for an account. New occupations such as ride hail driver or traditional ones such as janitor or truck driver could soon become employees in California after a groundbreaking state Supreme Court ruling last year. That ruling was the Dynamax case and it implemented a simple criteria called the ABC test under which someone is an employee if a company controls what they do, if their work is linked to a company's primary business, and if they do not have an independent business performing that work. Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez is sponsoring a labor-backed bill that would codify that test statewide. But numerous companies have lined up against it, saying it would undermine the flexibility that both they and the gig workers value. A separate case based on different criteria was decided in the U.S. Supreme Court this week. That high court declined to hear an appeal by the California Trucking Association, leaving intact a decision that could result in widespread reclassification of state truck drivers as employees. Gig workers lack a whole list of protections afforded employees, including minimum wage, overtime, paid breaks, family and medical leave, paid sick leave, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation. Those costs would add about 41% on top of the cost of wages, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Studies. 
A new report from the UC Berkeley Labor Center examined demographics and wages, as well as employers' classification practices, with an eye to the impact that changing workers' status might have. The report claims that misclassified workers are in vulnerable positions and being exploited. For instance, contracted janitors make a median hourly wage of $12.22 and are 80.9% Latino and 3.7% Black. Almost half live in households defined as low income, which is below 200% of the federal poverty line. The report estimated that 19% of California janitors are independent contractors without suggesting how many are misclassified. Among truck drivers, the median hourly wage was higher at $19.70 an hour, but drivers have high expenses, with many having to purchase a truck and pay for fuel, insurance, maintenance, and repair. About 60% were Latino and 6% were black. About a fifth live in low-income households. A National Employment Law Project report said that about four-fifths of drivers at California ports are classified as independent contractors, with the majority being misclassified. And for construction workers, median hourly pay is $14.98 an hour, with 73.2% being Latino and 2.3% Black. About 40% live in low-income households. And in medical news, many countries have legalized or decriminalized cannabis using use, leading to concerns that this might result in an increase in cannabis use and associated harm. Indeed, when it comes to the medical marijuana issue, the litigation and legislative trend seems to focus on the question of cannabis use, yes or no, without contemplating the related question of how long and what kind. As the following study points out, there are highly potent forms of cannabis available in pot shops where an injured worker might fill a prescription. The legislators and litigation outcomes do not seem to consider potent and dangerous types of cannabis which may be purchased with a cannabis prescription. Currently, studies support a causal link between cannabis use and psychotic disorder. And there is a dose-response association with the highest odds of psychotic disorder and those with the heaviest cannabis use. Nevertheless, it is not clear whether a population level patterns of cannabis use influence rates of psychotic disorder. Thus, researchers aim to identify patterns of cannabis use with the strongest effect on odds of psychotic disorder across Europe, and to explore whether differences in such patterns contribute to variations in the incidence rates of a psychotic disorder. The results of the study were published online this month in the Lancet Psychiatry Journal. Differences in the frequency of daily cannabis use and in the use of high-potency cannabis contributed to the striking variation in the incidence of psychotic disorder across the 11 studied sites. And the researchers say this has important implications for public health given the increasing availability of high-potency cannabis. 
Daily cannabis use was associated with increased odds of psychotic disorder compared with never-users. And this increased to nearly five times increased odds for daily use of high-potency types of cannabis. Use of high-potency cannabis was a strong predictor of psychotic disorder. Researchers concluded that their findings are consistent with previous epidemiological and experimental evidence, suggesting that the use of cannabis with a high concentration of THC has more harmful effects on mental health than does use of the weaker forms of the drug. In 2015, state lawmakers enacted legislation requiring that the DWC adopt a drug formulary that meets evidence-based medical standards. After two years of development, the MTUS prescription drug formulary took effect on January 1, 2018. The formulary adopted by the DWC includes exempt and non-exempt drug lists based on the need for prospective UR. While drugs that are not listed are allowed if the treating physician can show that their use for the specific injury is supported by the MTUS or other applicable guidelines. Now, new CWCI research shows that since California implemented its workers' compensation formulary last year, an increasing share of drugs prescribed to injured workers are either exempt from prospective utilization review or not listed in the formulary. While non-exempt drugs that require UR before they can be dispensed account for a declining share of the prescriptions. The CWCI has issued its study in a spotlight report, which includes additional analysis and tables showing the changing distributions of prescriptions for the top 20 drug ingredients overall and for the drugs on the special fill and perioperative drug list, as well as breakouts showing the changing percentages for the top 20 drugs in the exempt, non-exempt, and non-listed categories. Hospitals are rapidly consolidating into regional delivery networks. Whether these multi-hospital networks leverage their combined assets to improve quality and provide a uniform standard of care has not been evaluated. So researchers studied the consistency of surgical quality across hospitals that are affiliated with the 2018 U.S. News and World Report Honor Roll Hospitals. This question was asked and likely answered in a report by researchers published this month in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Surgery. They reviewed data from 87 hospitals that participated in one of 16 networks that are affiliated with the U.S. News and World Report Honor Roll Hospitals. The outcomes measured were 30-day postoperative complications, mortality, failure to rescue, and readmissions. They concluded that patients should not assume that a hospital that is affiliated with a very well-known medical center is able to offer the same services. As it turns out, the honor roll hospitals did not always have consistently better outcomes than their network affiliates. They tended to have higher complication rates compared to affiliated hospitals. But, 
The researchers say this may be because the honor roll hospitals were getting the more complicated cases. The most telling statistic was the failure to rescue rates, a measure of how well hospitals cope with surgical complications. Hospital staff needs to recognize a complication early and manage it and prevent the accumulation of other complications. Honor Roll hospitals had lower failure to rescue rates than affiliated hospitals, 13% versus 15%. And in other news, Brown and Brown Incorporated is a provider of insurance and reinsurance products and services. Its headquarters are in Dayton Beach, Florida. The company is currently ranked as the sixth largest independent insurance intermediary organization in the U.S. and eighth largest in the world. Brown & Brown is also one of the selected companies that comprise the Standard & Poor's 400 Stock Market Index. The company has reached from coast to coast with several offices here in California, and they are rapidly extending this reach with mergers and acquisitions this year. Brown & Brown Incorporated announced that the Advocator Group LLC, a wholly owned subsidiary of Brown & Brown, has acquired MedVal LLC. MedVal provides a suite of MSB-compliant services, which services incorporate frontline claims negotiation <clears throat> and comprehensive settlement solutions. MedVal has annual revenues of about $10 million. The MedVal team will continue to operate from their offices in California, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. And Brown & Brown Insurance Services of California, Inc. has acquired substantially all of the assets of Austin and Austin Insurance Services. This will serve the insurance needs of real estate professionals in the Bay Area of California. The firm specializes in providing errors and omissions insurance coverage to real estate brokers throughout the state. Brown & Brown revenues for the fourth quarter of 2018 were $508.7 million, increasing $34.4 million, or 7.3%, compared to the fourth quarter of the prior year. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates and past editions of our news and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, <clears throat> or Android device by searching for the WorkCop Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.